everybody. That's really, really kind. I'm, I now introduce myself as Anna's dad around here. And if they don't know who that is, I'll say I'm Rachel's husband. It's really nice. Um, for those who don't know, I used to be a pastor here, and it's just lovely to be part of the family and uh, have people looking out for us. Um, Rachel is she's going to be fine, but she's, um, she's just on IV and in hospital all the time. So uh, I'm stepping up. I hope that's okay. And I have an one of these very impressive sort of thermal mugs just to try and keep my, because I might have the same thing as she has, I don't know. Um, well, it's not as bad. Um, but this morning I discovered how effective these things are. I'd never had it. Rachel's going on about these mugs all the time, saying, oh, it's amazing, you must try the mug. I'm in hospital, take the mug. So I did and put boiling water in it and it was like drinking the sun. I, like, I, I scalded the whole of the inside of my mouth. I was like, I've never experienced thermal power like this. Um, so if I do have a little sip, I'm gonna look very tentative and you'll see. Um, if you have your Bible, do you want to grab it? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And as Andy said, we, this series uh, we're doing uh, on the king and uh, our king and the kingdom with seven mountains in the book of Matthew. And Matthew's got a beautiful shape to it. If you don't know the gospel of Matthew, it's the first gospel in the New Testament. It's the first account of the good news of Jesus, what he said and did and how he died and rose again and what that means. And the way Matthew structures his gospel is he sort of in part, he gives you seven mountains that Jesus goes up and does something and reveals himself as a particular kind of person. And so Ollie kicked us off last week and looking at Jesus' battle with temptation. And then as, uh, as Andy said, Rachel was going to do something on the Sermon on the Mount, the authoritative teacher. We'll come back to that later, I'm sure. And today we're going to be in Matthew 17, which is a later mountain. Um, and we're going to look at Jesus at the, as the glorious son, as the son who is glorious and radiant and beautiful and bright and one who draws us to himself and in some ways this is a way of explaining why the church of Jesus has just spent the last 10 or 15 minutes just singing you are worthy of it all for from you are all things and to you are all things if you're new to church it just seems odd I expect you think well I don't know why people are saying that I know they get they like Jesus in the church I don't really understand what it is about him that makes him the source of such affection for so many people. Why do people admire him like that? Why do they say he's amazing? I mean, okay, he might be impressive, but why go there? Why spend that long? Why, why are people here rather than at the gym or shopping or on a Sunday morning? What are they doing in this room just to sing praise to Jesus, which presumably many of them have many times before? And the answer in many ways is provided by, among others, this chapter, the Matthew chapter 17, where the veil comes off and for the first time in many ways, the disciples see who Jesus really is. No longer disguised in a sense by the sort of human uh, appearance that they're always just being tricked by and continually thinking, oh, well, this, this Jesus, he just looks like me. And then they have this mountaintop encounter with him. It's called the transfiguration, which is where Jesus is transfigured. His form is visibly changed and they see this is not just another person. He, he is human, he's exactly like me in some ways, but there is another level to this man that I haven't seen and they don't know what to make of it. And so we're gonna look and see. Now we're in Matthew 17 and beginning at verse one. Oh, by the way, we didn't have time to do slides because we only did this on, so you actually have to bring your Bible. So it's really funny, I, I can just see hundreds of people going, if you could turn in your Bibles and the entire church would say, yeah, we know this, and it always appears up there, well, today it won't, ha! So you're gonna have to actually look at your Bible. So everyone's frantically going, I don't even know, what's a Bible? Is it like the, a book I'm supposed to bring? Anyway, if you don't know the Bible, don't worry, just listen, I'll read it, you'll understand. But if you've got your Bible, you will need it. Matthew 17, verse one. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. There, he was transfigured 
before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, but why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but they've done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is gonna suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of God, amen. Right, excuse me for a cough. <coughs> Thank you. A little ripple of applause for the men at the back who make these things disappear so you don't have to hear them. It's all very, that wasn't a ripple of applause. That was really half-baked, by the way. Um, I'm grateful for the round of applause, but thank you. That's great. They work much harder than the people up here. I trust you know that. Um, as you speak for myself. Um, so spend a, moment, a few moments reflecting together on the glorious sun. The beauty, the glory of Jesus Christ. And this story, which is normally, as I said, it's called the transfiguration, the time Jesus gets transfigured. His visible appearance is changed in front of them. And it's the moment in the gospel where Jesus' glory is most clearly seen. Until now, he has looked and sounded pretty much exactly like any other 30-something Galilean carpenter. You would walk past him in the street, you wouldn't know it was Jesus. You wouldn't feel the presence, the aura. You wouldn't see this blinding light coming out of him. You, you wouldn't smile and then ding, like a game show host, out comes the sort of brightness of his teeth. You wouldn't have noticed him. He would smell like everyone else, which, by the way, by our standards would be not great because a lot of the personal hygiene that we have, they wouldn't have had. He would look like everyone else. He's roughly the same height. He would be ordinary. He would probably had a couple of teeth missing. He would probably you know, carry some sort of scars or a limp or something. He would just look just like everyone else. And then suddenly, in this moment in the story, for a few, we're not sure, minutes or perhaps hours, the veil comes off. And his transcendent radiance, the, the radiance of who he has been all along as the, the son of God in human form, suddenly becomes visible to the people around him. And we see him for who he really is. And it's marvelous. They're captivated by it and terrified by it and confused. And they feel a bit awkward and they say, oh, let's make a tent. It's like, no, 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 shh. Listen, listen, this is my son, God says. And that story is, uh, this, uh, there's the only parallel I can think of is when you have moments where a celebrity appears among their fans kind of in disguise. And then comes a moment when the fans realize, oh, it actually is the celebrity. You know, the, have you seen those things? They sometimes do the rounds on YouTube. I remember seeing one a few years ago about loads of Adele impersonators who were all meeting at an audition thing 
and then Adele herself came to do one of the, be one of the Adele impersonators. And she kind of had him put in some fake teeth, and she, they made her look like it wasn't really her, but it was still recognizably, recognizably was. And there's all these women, and they're all like, oh, real big fans, and they're oh, yeah, well done, you go, girl. They're really getting into it, and they're singing these performances, and you're a listener just going, you're a nice singer, but it doesn't sound like Adele. And then the real Adele, in disguise, gets up and starts singing, and as soon as you sing the opening notes, you as the audience are going, oh my goodness, this is, that's the real one. And the, some of the girls go, and you can see them like this, like, it's the real one. And then the other go, no, no way, never. No, it's not her, she doesn't look like that. And they're having this little debate, and then as the song goes on, they think, that's the real one, it's really you. It's like the veil comes off, and the disguise almost that she'd been wearing, they suddenly realize this is, this is the real one, and they're in awe. Now, that's obviously a tiny parallel of what we've got here. I remember Kaká, the great footballer, turned up in the cage up in North London a few years ago. Just, they were play, playing cage football, and there's just a bunch of lads from local area. And then you suddenly realize, oh, one of them is Kaká. He, like, he won the Ballon d'Or 20 years ago. He was like a Brazilian national genius footballer, and he just joins in. And it's so funny, because some of the guys are playing football with him. They take a tackle to this. And at one point, he's running down the wing, and he's about to shoot. And one of the other players goes, pass, pass, pass. He's like, no, I actually think it'll be better if he doesn't and just shoots. And it just whack the ball. You can't even see it. And these guys are like, whoa, this is the real deal. It's even a little like the scene in The Wrong Trousers. You know, Wallace and Gromit, when the whole way through has been these posters saying, have you seen this chicken? You know, and it's been thinking, that doesn't look like a chicken, that's a penguin with a rubber glove on his head. But everyone's convinced it's the chicken. And then at the very end, sort of having done all of this thing, he takes the hat off. And then Wallace goes, it's you! And he realizes it's the penguin. It's like that moment where you suddenly see it's been you all along. I didn't, this is this master footballer, master singer, master villain, whatever. Those are little parallels, but in this case, they are seeing this is, this is God in human form. This is the creator and sustainer of everything, of every blade of grass out there, every daffodil out there, every star, and he's become a human, and I can finally see how glorious he is, and he's not just a 30-something Galilean carpenter. So consider the glory of his appearance. Okay, so we just reflect on his glory. Just consider how glorious his appearance is. After six days, verse 1, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. He was transfigured before them. His shape, his physical appearance was totally changed. His face shone like the sun. So the ordinary face of a middle-aged Galilean tradesman Brown eyes, olive skin, dark hair, missing teeth, is momentarily is unable to prevent the radiant brilliance of divine glory from being seen for what it is. It's as if the clouds have suddenly parted. You know those days where, around here where you get a sea mist, the weather forecast says it's going to be bright sunshine, but you go down to the seafront and it's just sea mist. We had one of these a couple of months ago, and it was sunny in Old Town, but down on the seafront it's just complete. And then, then you think, oh man, this is one of those really grey days. And then there comes a moment somewhere, 10 or 11 in the morning, when suddenly the sun comes through, and it's like the sea mist just vanishes in a moment. And, and that's what Peter, James, and John see. They see, like, it's what Charles Wesley described in that hymn we for, tragically only ever sing it at Christmas, but what a hymn. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. That's what they're seeing. They're saying, you, you've been veiled in flesh, but now I've seen, I can see the Godhead. He is veiled in flesh, but now, bang, the sea mist has parted. 
And of course, the point is that the sun is always bright, whether the sea mist is there or not. Jesus is always divine, whether the disciples can see it or not, but his radiance cuts through in this story and the glory of his appearance is dazzling. And actually, even his clothes are transformed. We read, his clothes became as white as the light. The splendor of the eternal Son of God illuminates the crumpled and stained and probably smelly clothes that Jesus is wearing, completely changing their color. And so what happens in this story is what happens to us as when we sing those songs at Christmas or whatever, we see the Godhead, though veiled in flesh, suddenly shine through and consider the glory of his appearance. So think about the glory of his appearance in the story. Consider also the glory of his word. Right, we're just gonna do four. So the glories of appearance, the glory of his word. Look at the, the, the power and the glory of the word of the Son of God. Now that might seem an odd point to make because while the transfiguration's happening, Jesus doesn't say anything. Another cough coming, sorry. <coughs> so while the transfiguration is happening, Jesus doesn't say anything at all. So I wanna show you where I'm getting that from, that the word of Jesus is glorious in this story. Jesus has gone up the mountain with his three leading apostles, Peter, James, and John. And he's then joined by the author of the law, Moses, and the, author, and the most significant, prominent one of the prophets, which is Elijah. So we've got the three leading apostles, the key figure in the law, and the key, at least key acting figure in the prophets, and they're all standing surrounding the Lord Jesus in the middle. In other words, Jesus is here, and he's got the law, the prophets, and the apostles all around him. You could say it's like a picture of what the Bible is. It's a picture of this. You've got the Son of God in the middle, and you've got the law and the prophets and the apostles witnessing to him. So that's the nature, that's, what, that's the setup of the story. And we know from the other accounts that we read in the other Gospels that what the law and the prophets are talking about, what Moses and Elijah are discussing while they're here, is Jesus and his death. We know that because Luke tells us that they talked about his death, his departure. So Jesus is in the center of not just of this scene, he's in the center of this book as well. The law, the prophets, the apostles, that's all this is. And they're all bearing witness to him at the center. It's a wonderful illustration of the doctrine of scripture. That the law and the prophets are talking about Jesus. The apostles are struggling to make sense of what the law and the prophets are saying about Jesus. And sometimes the apostles are getting in a muddle and going, well, should we build tents? What's going on here? But the point is, apostles, prophets, and law, all looking at Jesus in his glory and in their different ways, trying to bear witness to how rich and glorious he is. I'm going to put a, a slide up. Thank you very much, Simon, for your hard work earlier, again, making this possible. This is very kind. So this is a picture. Has anybody been to the cathedral at Chartres in France? They give away. You, of course. Do you know what? How, who is not surprised that Clive Chernick has been to the cathedral at Chartres? If I mention anywhere in Europe, has anyone been there? And Clive, went, yes, I have. It's amazing. You must have the gift of teleportation or something. But anyway, and you've presumably reflected on and see the. I mean, they, it is the. It's probably the most extravagant display of stained glass anywhere in the world. It's absolutely a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Absolutely breathtaking. And this is one of the, the transept windows at the cathedral at Chartres. And I'm showing it because you, to you it just looks like a bunch of people with halos on. But what it actually is, is the four gospel writers, uh, if you like, panels one, two, four, and five, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're standing, you might be able to see on the shoulders of some little guys at the bottom. And the little people at the bottom are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, this window and, and sh this, uh, this cathedral is witness to the expression that you have definitely heard standing on the shoulders of giants. 
Some people think it comes from Oasis's album, which it doesn't. Some people think it comes from Isaac Newton, which it doesn't. He got it from a man called Bernard of Chartres in the 13th century, and this Chartres window is witnessing to this idea that when you can see glory, you can only see it because you're standing on the shoulder of giants. And it's a picture of the apostles standing on the shoulders of the prophets, and then in the middle panel is the Lord Jesus being held in the arms of the Virgin Mary. And it's an extraordinary witness to the way that scripture works, which is you have apostles standing on the shoulders of prophets bearing witness to the glory of Christ. In many ways, this is exactly what is happening in this story of the transfiguration. But actually, that's not even the main reason for saying, look at the glory of his word. The reason to listen to Jesus and reflect on the glory of his word is because the voice of God himself tells us to. Look at verse five. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. That's what God says. When Jesus' glory is exposed in front of his friends, the voice of God says, it's my son, I'm pleased with him, listen. Stop chattering about whether to build tents. Stop chattering about whatever else you're chattering about. Get off your phone for a moment, listen to him. Christ is speaking. Listen. That's what the voice of God says in the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. You should honor Moses and the law. You should honor Elijah and the prophets. You should honor the apostles. You should read what they say. You should memorize it. You should write it on your fridge or on your mirror. You should learn it in your devotional times. You should read it every day, and I do, and so do many of us. But you should listen to him. You should hear the voice of the Lord Jesus coming through those voices and those witnesses and seeing his splendor for what it is. Take his words with the utmost seriousness, church. When you do, you will find that the law and the prophets and the apostles all make sense in light of him. Verse six, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. And then this is the only thing he says during this entire encounter. Verse seven, Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. So many times in the Gospels, you're expecting Jesus to say something and then that's exactly what he says. You think, what's he gonna do? There's a storm raging, what's he gonna say? He says, don't worry, don't be afraid. God's here, it's gonna be all right. Get up. So what happened when John, the Apostle John, sees Jesus, similar to this, in Revelation, start of Revelation, he's just blown away, in, and I don't mean as a metaphor, I mean he's almost like literally cannot stand in the face of the glory, and Jesus comes up and says, don't worry, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one who died. You've got nothing to be afraid of anymore. You fear me. You don't have to fear anything else. The voice of Jesus is speaking to you this morning. What are you afraid of? What's making you not want to stand in his presence? What's making, what are you carrying? Do you feel, I just, I'm not sure I'm there for that. I'm not sure I'm quite, I'm not quite like everyone else around. They're all fine. They're all singing. They, they all get it. I'm just, uh, no, they, if you knew of this about me, Jesus says, get up. Don't be afraid. And the voice of God says, it's my son. You better listen to him. So if God the father says, listen to my son, and then God the son says, you don't need to be afraid. Just get up. I'm going to take that seriously. Consider the glory of his word. The glory of his appearance, the glory of his word. Then thirdly, I'm gonna take a sip of this now, hopefully not burn my face, the glory of his death. Bear with me. The glory of his death. 
The death of the Lord Jesus overshadows this whole section of Matthew. And so if you were to look, now you're rather smugly sitting there with your Bible open and going, oh yeah, you can see on either side, there's other passages that are relevant here as well. Jesus predicts his death. Jesus predicts his death a second time. And if you, if you turn over the page, Jesus predicts his death a third time. The death of Jesus is everywhere in this section of the gospel. And what happens in this bit of the story, Jesus asks the disciples in chapter 16, who do you think I am? Peter says he's the Christ. Immediately, he starts talking about his death. He says, yes, I am. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. Then he says, chapter 16, verse 24 to 28, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die too. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing. The world is not enough. And so Jesus is hammering on about his own death in this very section. Then he has this encounter in the middle. So you've got Jesus says, I'm going to die. Then he says, you're going to die. And then you're going to rise. Then he's got the transfiguration in the middle, which in Luke's gospel we hear Moses and Elijah are talking about his departure in Jerusalem. That is his death. So when the law and the prophets and the gospels have a conversation about the Lord Jesus, they're talking about the cross. Then immediately after this story, he says to his disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen until I'm risen from the dead. Then he talks about his suffering again, verse 12, in the same way the son of man's gonna suffer at their hands. Then he heals a demonized boy, little hiatus, and then he starts talking about his death again in verse 22. So you could read this entire section as a series of reflections on the death of Christ with the transfiguration in the middle. Consider the glory of his death. Now, we don't tend to think of death and glory as things that fit together. We tend to think of them as opposites. In fact, you quite often get that. It's a comic line in movies, isn't it? Death or glory. Which one do you want? Glory or death? But Jesus sees one as a means of the other. He sees his death as a means of glorification. Talks about this a lot in John's gospel. See, this is how I'm going to be glorified. My crucifixion is going to be me being lifted up from the earth, glorified, so that I can draw everyone to me. And Jesus is always, if you want to know where do you find the glory of Jesus Christ, you say, look at his death, look at the cross. That's where, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, that's where you see the glory of Christ most vividly is at the cross. Nothing reveals the depths of who Jesus is, like the cross does. There's nothing else, no other moment in his life, not even this one actually, where you can see the glory of Jesus at a distance and go, that's why he's glorious. The cross is the, the ultimate demonstration of how glorious he is in scripture. It shows God's love in a way that nothing else does. It shows his righteousness, his mercy, his faithfulness. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3.26, he did this to show his righteousness so that he might be righteous at the present time. That's why Jesus died. Romans 15.8, Christ became a servant to the Gentiles to show Christ's truthfulness. He did it that the Gentiles might glorify him for his mercy. Every attribute of God you care to mention, you see it in the cross of Christ. And so in this story, sandwiched as it is between all sorts of death moments, you see the glory of Christ revealed ultimately through his death. So it shouldn't surprise us that when Moses and Elijah are having a conversation about Jesus with him, what they're talking about is his death, his departure in Jerusalem, we read in Luke chapter 9. So consider the glory of his appearance. Consider the glory of his word. Consider the glory of his death. And then finally, a strange one, consider the glory of his exodus. 
That's a word you perhaps were not expecting. But in Luke chapter 9, verse 30, we read, it's the same story but just told by Luke, we read, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, his departure, his leaving, his way out. Now, some of you know me well enough to know I'm a total nerd for language. I'm not as much of a nerd as Clive, actually, about language, but I am a ne I'm nearly Clive level of n linguistic nerdery. And when I'm in another country and I recognize a word in an airport or something, I get deeply excited. I take photos of it. I start shouting in the arrivals lounge. And my first time I ever went to a Greek airport, it had never occurred to me that the word exodos was the word for way out. So when you go through Heathrow, it says way out. And you say, oh, that's, the, that's the exit. That's where the, my car is or whatever. But in Greek, in Greek airport, you go and it says exodos. And I was just... I was with Rachel, and I'm sorry to say I made a bit of a scene. Um, and I was just like, Exodus! And I was just so excited. Because it means way out, it means departure, it means the way to get out of here. And that's the word that Luke uses to describe the substance of this conversation. Matthew, in fairness, we, as you'll notice when we read the text, Matthew doesn't actually give us that word, but Luke does. In the same, he says, this is what they were talking about. So. Peter, James, and John are like, bang, they're dazzled, they don't know what's going on. Maybe they'll be planning, sort of sketching out tents and things on the back of their, I don't know, whatever they do. But Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about Jesus' exodus, Jesus' departure, his way out, which obviously means his death in Jerusalem, but it's a very interesting word to use. It's not the normal word you'd use to say, I'm dying. In fact, we don't, even to this day, really, saying, oh yeah, I'm I'm." You might use another euphemism. You might say passing away or whatever it might be, but you don't normally say my exodus, but that's what they do. And I think the Holy Spirit has deliberately chosen that word to tell us what this conversation is about because he wants us to see the glory of Christ is revealed in his appearance and in his word and in his death, but it's also an exodus that Christ is bringing. And that's the one place in the gospel that it gets called that. So what happens in this gospel story is Jesus calls together 12 disciples, like 12 tribes of Israel. He then takes them through wilderness and barrenness where they say, we're really, really hungry and God provides them bread from heaven, which is just what happens to Israel. He takes them through water of baptism. He delegates authority to his disciples. He gets them arranged in groups of 50. He provides heavenly bread for all of them, just like Moses did. Then he goes up a mountain like Moses does at Sinai and he's surrounded by his three merry men, Peter, James, and John, just like Moses went up with Nadab and Abihu and Aaron. And then they see an encounter of God as the glory cloud descends on the mountain. The difference between the, this Exodus story and the Exodus story you know in the Old Testament, if you know it, is that they were never allowed to see God's face. And yet here they are seeing his face shining like the sun. They then try and build a tent. So, I mean, we always give Peter a hard time for this idea, don't we? Oh, what an idiot. Who would ever think about camping at a time like this? But actually, what he's doing probably reflects the idea, this is a mountaintop encounter with God, and what they did when Israel had a mountaintop encounter with God is they built him a tabernacle. Maybe we should do that. So I think we might be a little harsh on Peter sometimes. But there's a tabernacle or a tent suggested for the presence of God. Then there is a voice from heaven saying you must listen to God's chosen one. In other words, the exodus, the way out, the escape, the departure of Jesus is not only about his death. It's about the whole story of the gospel. Jesus coming to his people to lead them out of slavery and into freedom. Up mountains, hearing the voice of God, dwelling in their presence, glory clouds, the whole caboodle. And they get to see God's face this time. 
It's about his glory, his authority, his revelation, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, all of it. Jesus is not just leaving. He's going to start an exodus. He's going to start an escape from the land of slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey in which the slave masters get drowned in the sea and the multitudes find freedom. There's a lot for us to do in this world. There's a lot to get on with, isn't there? In normal life. Sometimes it's good just to spend some time reflecting on the glory of the sun. Just reflecting on the glory of his appearance, what he looks like. The glory of his word and how all scripture witnesses to him. The glory of his death lifted up from the earth, drawing all people to himself. The glory of his exodus, his radiance, his power, his sacrifice, his glory. This is God's beloved son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And we're going to conclude in a moment by having communion and then singing. So I wonder if the band would be able to come out. Andy's going to lead us through this because uh, I'll be honest, I'm not 100% sure how it all works. But uh, we're going we're to have a moment to sing in a moment. But I do want the word of Jesus come to, for you to hear the word of Jesus coming to you. Get up. Don't be afraid. This meal is a powerful thing that we're going to do. It's something that, by the way, it's something that Christians participate in. But those, who, if you're not repentant of your sin or you don't trust in Jesus as your saviour, you shouldn't come for this meal. Actually, everything else is for you in church. The songs, the message, everything, the coffee, but not the communion table because it's a special thing that Christians do to receive grace from the Lord Jesus to those who he's called his own and those who commit to themselves to him. And actually, if that is you, if you're one of those people who has committed your life to Jesus, and most of you are, this is a time to get up and come to Jesus and don't be afraid. Say, okay, the grace of God in Christ is here for me in bread and wine, bread and juice. It's an invitation. It's just before I was about to speak, I was reflecting on that line in the Psalm, where Psalm 81, where God says, I'm the Lord, I brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. That's what we do when we come to communion. Say, this is God. Jesus is here. Now open your mouth, literally in our cases, to eat and drink. Open your mouth and fill it because the grace of God wants to come to you in person and satisfy you with good things. You don't have anything to be afraid of. He's paid for your sin. So I'm just going to pray a prayer of confession, asking God's forgiveness, and then we're going to come to the table and Andy will lead us through that. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and we acknowledge that in ourselves, we have sinned against you in all kinds of ways. We've thought things and said things and done things we shouldn't that have offended you. And we're really sorry. And we repent of all of them. But we ask that for the sake of the Lord Jesus, who appeared on the mountain, who spoke, who died, who rose to lead us into freedom, that for the sake of the Lord Jesus, you would forgive us everything we've ever done. You would wash away all of our sin. And you would allow us to serve you in a new life through the gift of your spirit who lives and reigns with you and the Lord Jesus forever. Amen. Amen. Friends, get up. Don't be afraid. Jesus is here and he wants to bless you.